This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. For the last few weeks in this program, we've somewhat avoided current events, but there have been some things that have taken place of note recently that we cannot avoid discussing. The first of which being that in the impeachment of Donald Trump, the third U.S. president to be impeached, the headlines said that he was acquitted. But we don't think that's, strictly speaking, true. Yes, the Senate did vote on whether to remove him from office, but they did so without hearing any evidence or hearing any witnesses. And wouldn't you know it, no sooner did the Senate vote to not remove him from office than a bunch of suspicious papers popped up. For the Washington Post or anybody else to say that Trump was acquitted, I think does the public a grave disservice. It gives people the idea that some sort of trial actually took place. Imagine, for example, that O.J. Simpson, having been accused of crimes, was able to see his case go straight to the jury without having any evidence presented or witnesses heard from. Well, then his acquittal would have made a little more sense than it did. I'd like to share a few words said about this whole fiasco from, oddly enough, the husband of Trump aide Kellyanne Conway. Her husband, George, a noted Republican operative, isn't as high on the president as Kellyanne is, shall we say. For he recently penned a piece, an opinion piece, widely published, which said, among other things, the following. I believe the president and in the president. I believe the Senate is right to acquit the president. I believe a fair trial is one with no witnesses, and that the trial was therefore fair. I believe the House was unfair because it found evidence against him. I believe that if the president does does something that he believes will get himself reelected, that's in the public interest and can't be the kind of thing that results in impeachment. I believe the president's call was perfect. I believe he's deeply concerned about corruption in Ukraine. I believe the president can find Ukraine on the map. George Conway continues, I believe Ukraine interfered in the 2016 election and that the intelligence community's suggestion otherwise is a deep state lie. I believe the Democratic National Committee server is in Ukraine where CrowdStrike hit it. I believe President Barack Obama placed a tap on the president's phones in 2016 that the Russian investigation was a plot to keep him from winning, even though the plotters didn't think he could win. I believe former special counsel Robert S. Mueller III was conflicted because he quit one of the president's golf clubs and that he and his angry Democrats conducted a witch hunt to destroy the president. But I believe Mueller's report totally exonerated the president because it found no collusion and no obstruction. I believe it would be okay for the president to say he grabs women by their... because he's a star and stars are allowed to do that. But I believe he didn't say that even though he apologized for it, because I believe the Access Hollywood tape was doctored, because he said it was. I believe E. Jean Carroll lied when she accused the president of rape because he said she's not his type. I believe the dozens of other women who accused him of sexual misconduct are also lying because he would never think of grabbing them by their... or anything else. I believe the president didn't know Michael Cohn was paying off porn star Stormy Daniels and that Cohn did it on his own because the president had no reason to pay her off. 
I believe the president was reimbursing Cohn for his legal expertise. I believe the president wants to release his taxes, but has not because he's under audit, which is why he has fought all the way to the Supreme Court not to disclose them. I believe he will disclose them when the audit is over, and they will show and be rich and honest as he says he is. I believe the president is a very stable genius, and he repeatedly tells us so, because it's true. Anyway, he goes on, I think you get the idea. And on a less satirical note, we have the editorial board of the New York Times, which opined that Trump's acquittal is a stain on American history and a dangerous marker of what's to come. Said the editors, no one should be surprised that President Trump was acquitted by the U.S. Senate. That outcome was a virtual certainty from the start of the impeachment process. But that doesn't make it any less disheartening and dangerous. By voting for acquittal, the Senate not only gave a congressional seal of approval to the president's high crimes and misdemeanors, but also may have emboldened a victorious Trump to offend against the Constitution again. There can be little doubt that Trump abused the power of his office in his outrageous attempt to induce Ukraine to investigate former Vice President Joe Biden. Then, he sought to stonewall the investigation by flatly refusing to release the documents and ordering his subordinates not to testify. And I'm going to stop right there because my hope is you will read it yourself in its entirety. It's not all that long. And scarcely was the ink dry on that opinion piece when we have this, also from the New York Times. Headline, Prosecutors Quit Roger Stone Case After Justice Department Intervenes on Sentencing. President Trump had complained that the recommendation of seven to nine years in prison for his former advisor and longtime friend was a miscarriage of justice. Noted the piece, four prosecutors withdrew on Tuesday from the case of Roger J. Stone Jr., the longtime friend of President Trump, after senior Justice Department officials intervened to recommend a more lenient sentence for Mr. Stone, who was convicted of impeding investigators in a bid to protect the president. The highly unusual move prompted one of the government's key prosecutors to resign altogether. It came after federal prosecutors in Washington asked a judge late Monday to sentence Mr. Stone to seven to nine years in prison for trying to sabotage a congressional investigation that threatened Mr. Trump and that the president criticized the recommendation on Twitter as horrible and very unfair, as he did after a jury speedily convicted Mr. Stone on seven felony charges in November. Trump attacked the federal law enforcement officials saying, quote, the real crimes are on the other side, unquote. Well, we'll see where this all leads. It, it certainly was predicted by many, including Roger Stone himself, that he was not going to see much prison time. But here's a little item that I don't think made the New York Times that is worthy of note. This comes from the freethoughtproject.com. Headline was, as no one watched, Trump pardoned five megabanks for corruption charges, who he owes millions. And this is not a brand spanking news story. Piece by Rachel Blevins notes, while Americans celebrated the holidays, President Trump followed in the footsteps of his predecessors by acting in the interests of Wall Street and using the distraction to do something that was not in the best interest of the American people. He pardoned five megabanks for rampant fraud and corruption, which is especially notable because of the amount of money he owes them. Trump has been using Deutsche Bank since the 1990s. The Financial Times reported that he now owes the bank at least $130 million in outstanding loans secured in properties in Miami, Chicago, and Washington. However, a source told the Times the actual number is likely much larger than $300 million. Reports claimed that Deutsche was the only bank willing to lend Trump money after his companies faced multiple bankruptcies. Of course, I did very well in those. 
The piece notes that the relationship has continued over the years, and an analysis from the Wall Street Journal claimed that Trump has received at least $2.5 billion, that's with a B, billion dollars in loans from Deutsche Bank over the last 20 years. There have been concerns about Trump's ties to the bank becoming a conflict of interest dating back to the 2016 election, and the evidence to support these concerns is now becoming clear. During the week of Christmas, the Federal Register announced that the Trump administration had issued waivers to Citigroup, J.P. Morgan, Barclays, UBS, and Deutsche Bank, all megabanks facing charges of fraud and corruption. Now, it's not clear from the article how much money this move was going to save Deutsche Bank, but they did note that they pled guilty to wire fraud in a U.S. court in 2015 and went on to pay $3.5 billion for its role in the LIBOR scandal, more than any other bank involved, before it reached a $7.2 billion settlement with the Justice Department in early 2017. I think it's safe to assume that the amount of money they're going to save is in the billions, which means if you run Deutsche Bank and you loaned Donald Trump several hundred million dollars but managed to save several billion, and I admit that is speculative on my part, but it's hard to deny that if those numbers are even remotely accurate, that was a pretty good deal. And since we're starting off this show with a bang, talking about the stable, very stable genius, he tells us that he is, who's the president, there's this. Last Monday, Donald Trump tweeted a clip from the HBO series Curb Your Enthusiasm. He seems to have missed the punchline. Trump posted the 30-second clip from the first episode of season 10, which shows Larry David dressed in a Make America Great hat again. The clip shows David driving along the freeway when he accidentally cuts in front of a man on a motorcycle. The man starts cursing at David and pulls up alongside his car as if he wants to fight him. To avoid confrontation, David puts on a Make America Great Again hat, the adopted uniform of Trump supporters. I'm sorry I didn't see you, David tells the angry motorcyclist. Realizing David is wearing a MAGA hat, the motorcyclist brushes off the incident and changes his tone. We'll just be more careful next time, okay? He says before leaving. Trump posted the clip on Twitter on Sunday night alongside the caption, Tough guys for Trump. His tweet was then reposted more than 20,000 times. Some users apparently pointed out to Trump that he seems to have missed the joke in the episode, which is that David wears the hat in order to avoid unwanted interactions with people. Supposedly, Trump then deleted his own tweet, which I'm not sure how you do that, but I I guess he did. But uh, too late. Anyway, speaking of Kirby enthusiasm, let's get off the topic of you-know-who. With the able assistance of Mr. Merrill and I went out and purchased a high-definition television recently and have been somewhat disquieted at just how much detail there is on high-def TV. It just it doesn't look right. And, you know, anybody over the age of, like, 25 looks like a bag of wrinkles. In fact, as a physician, I, I observed the face of the supporting character, Jeff Garland, and thought, he's got some kind of a tumor or something in his mouth. So I went on the internet and tried to tweet if anybody else is noticing this, and yes, apparently quite a few people are. Now, I don't know that it's possible to diagnose a suspected case of oral pharyngeal cancer from watching high-def TV, but there's something wrong with the right side of the mouth of the character Jeff Green in Curb Your Enthusiasm, and I think we're going to see more about that in in the future. It's going to have to wait. When I was noodling around on the web, I noted that Jeff Garland apparently got arrested several years ago in an incident where he apparently smashed the windshield of another 
driver's car after a uh, an incident. The details were sketchy, but it did refresh my memory of the time when somebody apparently cut off Jack Nicholson or did something in a parking lot. I'm not sure at which point uh, good old Jack went and got the <laughs> opened up the trunk of his car and took out a golf club and proceeded to knock out the guy's headlights and I think more. And we're not sanctioning this kind of activity here on Radio Parallax. We just want to say that we understand it. And, of course, uh, things in the government aren't the only activities that uh, people are focusing on. They had an Oscar ceremony last week, which I studiously avoided watching, as I always do. However, because I was watching television for another purpose and happened to be channel surfing, I, I just happened to clip the ceremony as they were about to announce the Best Actor Award. I paused long enough to take the scene in and think, well, I hope at least they don't give it to the guy playing the lead role in a movie about a Batman villain. And of course, the award went then went to Joaquin Phoenix, who then <laughs> came forward to give a rambling, disjointed, I'm not sure you could call it speech, but it sure reminded me of the time he appeared on the David Letterman show, acted completely bizarre to the point where at the end of the chat, Letterman said to him, it's a shame you couldn't make it tonight, Joaquin. Anyway, speaking of Batman, we're still trying to work on Burt Ward for this program. We, we may succeed. And after thinking about it a minute, it occurred to me that, well, you know, a supposedly serious acting role about a guy portraying a Batman villain, or should I say Batman supervillain, is in an odd way appropriate for an event to take place in a nation where a reality TV star who pretended to be a successful, savvy, billionaire, wheeler-dealer got elected president because people believed he was all of those things, even though the evidence suggests, in fact, he's none of those things. But I suppose in fairness, I do need to add that Mr. McMillan evidently took in Mr. Phoenix's performance in The Joker and, and thought it was a good acting performance, am I right? A very good acting performance, quite unlike his uh, Oscar speech. <laughs> I have to say, I haven't watched the Oscars since I, I was a kid, really, but even as a kid, it used to amaze me that all these big, glittery stars would come forth, get up on the stage, and do the damnedest things, and say the damnedest things. And speaking of doing the damnedest things, how about them 49ers? Seven minutes to go. Up by 10, they had the ball, and they proceed to see the other team score 21 points. Then again, young Patrick Mahomes is the kind of phenomenal player that can do that sort of thing. And in a contest like that, it, it, it can all come down to just one play, one little action of one player on the field that can change everything. Not just Mahomes, you know, his receivers, etc. Someone failing to make a tackle, etc., etc. Super Bowls are interesting. Big contests can be interesting anyway, but they're a lot less fun when your team loses. Some people did take the time to point out that Kyle Shanahan, the 49ers coach, was also the offensive coordinator in that Atlanta Falcons versus New England Patriots Super Bowl. I, I believe it was, what, 27-3 to in favor of Atlanta with a few minutes left in the third quarter, which, as you may or may not recall, the Patriots then won by scoring 25 unanswered points. It's hard to blame poor Kyle Shanahan, but when your team in the fourth quarter in two different Super Bowls in which you participated in get outscored 46 to nothing, well, it does raise eyebrows. On the other hand, one year ago, very few people would have guessed that the San Francisco 49ers were going to be in the Super Bowl. 
Their quarterback had had an ACL injury, and it was doubtful he would you know, ever return to football. And yet, return he did. He had a good year. They went 15-4, and four, the same overall record, by the way, as the Kansas City Chiefs. And who knows? You know, we may see a rematch next year or the year after. That'd be cool. Well, I was curious as to whether in the history of the Super Bowl there had ever been an occasion where the same two teams met in consecutive years. And yes, it happened once. Back in the 70s, the Steelers beat the Cowboys and then came back the next year and did it again. And of course, the halftime of the Super Bowl has turned into, I don't know, they've expanded the halftime from what used to be 20 or 30 minutes to 45 or 50 minutes. I mean, I guess they have to. They're going to wheel all that stuff out in the stage, make a, a crowd materialize from nowhere, you know, jump up and down in, in, in pretended ecstasy over their performers. Uh, I don't know. Although I make a point not to take in halftime shows, the Super Bowl. Circumstances this year directed me to have to observe some of it. I guess Shakira and, and J-Lo were singing up on stage. I mean, they were both obviously shouting into a microphone. And I guess all the sexy bumps and grinds that took place and the simulated pole dancing by J-Lo ticked off a few people out in America's heartland. I would note that some of the moves did appear so suggestive that at one point I turned to the people in the room and said, why don't they just pull their pants down? Buddy of mine said, yeah, I'm expecting a wardrobe malfunction any minute now. But enough about sports and TV extravaganzas. In fact, this might be a good time to jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week a couple weeks back for ageism after a Methodist church in Minnesota asked its members who were over the age of 60 to worship elsewhere for 18 months while it tries to woo a younger congregation. After all, Reverend Dan Wetterstrom explained, Jesus said, we are called to reach new people. I don't recall the other comment Jesus apparently made, which was, and if you're over 60, to hell with you. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for O.J. Simpson, A couple weeks back, he is suing the Cosmopolitan Casino in Las Vegas for damaging his reputation by banning him for being drunk and disruptive. The casino responded that it couldn't possibly have tarnished Simpson's reputation because, well, he's a convicted felon, widely believed to have knifed his ex-wife and her friend to death. No word on whether Alan Dershowitz has rejoined the Simpson Dream Team. And it was an ugly week this past week for recycling with the news that officials in Baltimore County, Maryland, admitted the county hadn't actually recycled any glass in the past seven years, despite requiring residents to place discarded bottles and jars in recycling bins the entire time. My question is, how come they can't take those Baltimore officials and put them in orange jumpsuits down in Guantanamo? I'm just curious. And here's an item we're not sure exactly whether it's good or bad or ugly, maybe all three, but um, we'd say it was whatever for proving the obvious in the wake of a new study in the International Journal of Psychology, which found that drivers of luxury German sports cars are more likely to be, quote, self-centered men who are argumentative, stubborn, disagreeable, and unempathetic. Wait. Guys driving German sports cars? 
You're kidding me. I don't see how that could be. Oh, and in a not related exactly story, but one which should be tacked on to that last item, we have this from Jalopnik.com, which is that Ferrari sold 10,131 cars last year, cracking the five-digit threshold for the first time. It was a 10% increase from 2018, boosting the Italian manufacturer to a $771 million profit. And although I'm sure it's clear by this point that on this program we are not big fans of Donald J. Trump, we do have to acknowledge that it is his Department of Transportation that has proposed rules last week which are going to allow airlines to restrict passengers from flying with pigs, cats, rabbits, birds, and monkeys as emotional support animals. Sarah Nelson, the president of the Flight Attendants Union, said, the days of Noah's Ark in the air are hopefully coming to an end. It has been noted by some, including this program, that pet owners were increasingly abusing existing policy and the number of emotional support animals on commercial flights surged from 481,000 in 2016 to 751,000 in 2017. Under new guidelines, airlines will prioritize service dogs trained to perform tasks for disabled people. The rules also limit passengers to two service animals that are required to fit within their owner's seating area. As reported on this program last year, one of the airlines, I forget which, drew the line at somebody trying to bring on an emotional support peacock. Mr. McMillan recalls someone trying to bring on a miniature horse. I don't remember that episode, but I believe you. You know, we're going to do several little bits in the second half of today's program, but there's one I want to insert in the first half because we were just talking about football. And we should note the passing, I guess it was last month, of Fred Cox, one of the Minnesota Vikings' most valuable players. He was a place kicker who scored 1,365 points, points, the second most in NFL history at the time of his retirement back in 1977. He was on the gridiron for all the team's four Super Bowl appearances. Unfortunately, they lost all four. But he may be best known to you and I for the fact that back in 1971, John Maddox, an entrepreneur, approached Cox with the idea for a backyard field goal kicking game for kids. Maddox initially wanted to use a heavy football that couldn't be booted very far. Cox told him, you're going to have a bunch of sore-legged kids, and suggested instead the ball be made of foam rubber. Cox asked a friend in the injection molding business to create a prototype, and the result was the light aerodynamic Nerf football. And Nerf actually stands for something, non-expanding recreational foam football. It has since sold tens of millions and have been used in countless backyard, beach, and living room catch sessions. And I think it's worthy of note that Fred Cox was a, a fullback at the University of Minnesota, drafted by the Cleveland Browns. His back got injured, so he began practicing place kicking. Traded the Vikings in 1962, he became a star member of the team. After retiring, Fred Cox set up as a successful chiropractor and supplemented his income with generous royalties from the Nerf football. Said Cox, my life has always been one of very good fortune. Things just seem to have come my way. Except a Super Bowl ring. Well, that's true. Let's back momentarily into politics. A lot of people are fearful that uh, this impeachment effort against Donald Trump is going to backfire and make him more popular than ever with his base. By the way, a fellow in my neighborhood who is part of Trump's base expressed astonishment to me that they were actually going to go ahead with this impeachment thing, even though 
if you listen to Trump's State of the Union address, you'd realize he's done these incredible number of wonderful things for the country. And I'd have to add, if you take what Trump says at face value, yeah. But I would note that one thing that was conspicuously absent from this impeachment versus that of Bill Clinton was that of a stained dress. We do want to note the fact that writer E. Jean Carroll requested last week that President Trump submit a DNA sample to substantiate her allegation that he raped her in the mid-1990s. Carroll, a longtime L. advice columnist based in Warwick, said she kept unwashed in her closet the black Donna Karan dress she was wearing when Trump forcibly penetrated her in a Manhattan department dressing room in, the late, in late 1995. A lab has found DNA on the dress sleeves belonging to at least four people, at least one of whom was male, though no semen was detected. Carroll sued Trump for defamation after he vehemently denied raping her, saying he never met this person in my life and that she was not my type. You've got to love it. No, I, I couldn't have raped her. She's not my type. Carol's lawyers have requested that the DNA sample be delivered by March 2nd. 20 other women, by the way, have publicly accused Donald Trump of sexual misconduct. Of course, what are the odds that a guy who defies congressional subpoenas is going to provide a DNA sample? Anyway, I have to go take a flying leap sideways into the following two articles which may or may not be related. Here's the first one. All right, in the two minutes we have left, I want to do a lightning round of three obituaries of a centenarian, nonagenarian, and octogenarian. The first, Kirk Douglas, who passed at age 103. The intense, muscular actor with the dimpled chin who starred in Spartacus, Lust for Life, and dozens of other films, helped fatally weaken the blacklist against suspected communists and reigned for decades as a Hollywood maverick and patriarch. Douglas reached stardom after World War II and was as likely to play Cads, the movie producer in The Bad and the Beautiful and the journalist in Ace and the Hole, as he was suited to play heroes. The obits noted that his granite-like strength and underlying vulnerability made the son of illiterate Russian-Jewish immigrants one of the top stars of the 20th century. He appeared in more than 80 films and roles ranging from Doc Holliday in Gunfight at the OK Corral to Vincent Van Gogh in Lust for Life. Personally, I would add that if you've never seen Stanley Kubrick's Paths of Glory, check it out. Kirk Douglas is pretty good. Our nonagenarian is actor-comedian Orson Bean, who passed away last week at 91 after unfortunately being hit and killed by two cars in Los Angeles. Orson Bean enlivened such TV game shows as To Tell the Truth and later played a crotchety merchant on Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman. He was born in Vermont in 1928 as Dallas Frederick Burroughs. He never lost his Yankee accent that proved a perfect complement to the dry, laconic storytelling that established him as a popular humorist. He picked the stage name Orson Bean because it sounded funny. Bean's comedy stylings appealed to both Jack Parr and Johnny Carson, and he appeared on The Tonight Show more than 200 times. Bean was apparently a sexual libertine, and when on The Tonight Show he started to advocate for group sex, Johnny Carson uh, got wet feet, let's say. If you're old enough to remember Orson Bean's appearances on TV shows like To Tell the Truth, uh, you'll, you'll remember him fondly. I was surprised to learn that he also was one of the co-founders of Sons of the Desert, an organization dedicated to comedians Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy. And lastly, we note the passing of octogenarian Bob Conrad. When James Bond knockoffs were all the rage back in the late 1960s, Robert Conrad was put onto television in the program The Wild Wild West, where he 
was apparently a secret agent during the administration of President Ulysses S. Grant. The handsome Conrad later appeared on the TV show Baba Black Sheep in the 1970s and was apparently a fixture up in the Dodge Ridge ski area where a nurse I used to work with became good friends with him. She described to me how shortly after she met, she said to Bob Conrad, Ooh, I used to just love watching you when I was a little girl. Apparently the 30 or 40 years that had passed since she was a little girl that did not sit well with Robert Conrad, but he sort of shrugged it off like, what can you do? And of course, mentioning Robert Conrad last gives us the opportunity to use the theme for the Wild Wild West as our outro music. It was truly one of the great television themes. Listen to Radio Parallax. We've got plenty more. Stick around. Mm-hmm. 